one thing I used to always say to people was a good speech doesn't need to say everything. It just needs to say a few things well. Uh, and that was really the key, is that you don't need to put in everything in here, you don't need to have massive amounts of PowerPoint slides, but you just need to say whatever it is you're trying to articulate well, and like that famous Churchill quote, you know, if you've got a good point, come back and hammer it. Hammer it three times, as much as you can, don't try and be clever, don't try and be, um, you know, really highfalutin language, just be plain English, and just nail it. Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. Today, joining us on GovComs is Ben Roberts. Ben is currently the Director of Communication with Cushman and Wakefield, where he works with the Department of Defence in Australia in their security and estate group as part of Cushman and Wakefield's National Program Services contract. Ben is a Navy veteran and has spent the last several years working in senior communication roles, not only in the defence industry, but across the Australian public service, where he worked as a senior speechwriter, where he wrote for ministers, agency heads, members of the senior executive service, ambassadors, and many, many more. And he's also worked in the role as political advisor. He's currently embedded uh, with the Service Delivery Division at the Department of Defence's Security and Estate Group, and he works there helping uh, across the group with their strategy and engagement. Ben has postgraduate qualifications in strategic communication from the University of Canberra and in public sector management from the Queensland University of Technology. He's currently studying both the Bachelor of Ancient History and the Graduate Certificate in Digital and Social Media at Kernet University. He joins us on the line now. Ben, welcome to GovComs. Thanks very much, David. How do you do that uh, as well as uh, keep up a very busy day working in uh, SEG at the Department of Defence? Uh, well, I mean, basically, I just, yeah, every evening get on the books, um, get on the uh, on the Zoom and do my lectures and do a lot of readings. And, you know, particularly there's, you know, not, not necessarily a lot of relevance between digital and social media and ancient history. Um, but I would say that any communicator worth their salt needs to know a bit of Cicero. So, <laughs> indeed, indeed. So, listen, let's let's take us you know back through your career because interestingly, you are a Navy veteran. So, um, when did you start uh, in the Navy? So I joined when I was I think I was about eighteen. Yeah, I was uh, joined straight in um, out of high school. I was very briefly at the University of Tasmania, and I was kind of just killing time until I could get recruited. Um, so I was just, uh, you know, sporadically attending philosophy lectures at the time. Uh, and then I, I joined up as a combat systems operator. Um, was in there for a few years. Interesting role. Um, ultimately, I decided that it wasn't exactly what I wanted to be doing. I don't think I was actually very suited to that role because that role was very technical. Uh, and as I've discovered throughout my life, I'm very, very right-brained and not very left-brained at all, uh, which is helpful in communication and not helpful when you're, you know, monitoring radar signals. And so then how did you make the journey um, 
into storytelling and communication uh, inside the Navy. How did you start to see the opportunity to be involved in the communication uh, in the in the role that you were in, or, or tell us that story. Yeah, I mean, not not really is the answer. I mean, when I started looking to actually leave the navy, and I you know I requested um, to be discharged, um, I was thinking long and hard about what am I going to do when I discharge. Um, and before I actually got in the navy, I had been uh, involved in um, you know student politics stuff. I was in the Young Liberals. Uh, I'll just pause for the sound of everybody turning off the podcast now. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I knew people through that. And so I was able to line myself up a job with um, uh, Senator Payne, who I worked for when I left the Navy, so that I could have that smooth transition. But but in the Navy, I kind of came to realize that I wasn't really using my primary skill set. Um, and so the only times I really was really using it um, was, you know, writing minutes and things like that, but not the real kind of meaty narrative work that we all enjoy so much in the profession. Um, so I left the Navy and went to work for Senator Payne for a few years. Uh, and that that is where I really cut my teeth on uh, government communication and, you know, in this case, kind of political and constituent communication as well. And what did you learn in those early days working for Senator Payne? It was very interesting. I mean, it was very interesting to see things kind of from the inside, see how things... Um, you know, that you might have speculated how things work on the inside of Parliament, but actually getting to see it up close is fascinating. Um, what I really cut my teeth on was speech writing, especially. Um, lots of speeches, um, lots of constituent correspondence and things like representations to ministers. So that's uh, where somebody will come in and say, you know, I need, need your help with this matter. Can you please write a letter to the minister on my behalf and kind of flag this issue with them? So doing, doing lots of that kind of work. Um, also things like, you know, op-eds, media releases with like, you know, the Cumberland newspapers and uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, it was really great. There was something really thrilling, um, even even as long ago as back then. I mean, this was during the Howard government. It was a while ago. Um, in having your words read out in Parliament and being able to look up in the hand side and say, well, yeah, I mean, I didn't say that, but I wrote that and I'll still own that. You know, what makes a great speech? Um, brevity, I would say, primarily. Um, you know, people seem to seem to think that people want to listen to speeches that go for 40 minutes and they really don't. Probably about 10 minutes is about a good speech. Um, but ultimately, I think you just need to tell a story. I think that, um, you know, I was a senior speechwriter at the Home Affairs Department for a number of years. Um, and then I went and performed the same role at the ACCC as well. And one thing I used to always say to people was a good speech doesn't need to say everything. It just needs to say a few things well. Uh, and that was really the key, is that you don't need to put in everything in here. You don't need to have massive amounts of PowerPoint slides. In fact, I would quite recommend against doing that. But you just need to say whatever it is you're trying to articulate well. And like that famous Churchill quote that you might see me talking about on LinkedIn from time to time, you know, if you've got a good point, come back and hammer it. Hammer it three times. As much as you can, don't try and be clever. Don't try and be, um, you know, really highfalutin language. Just be plain English and just nail it. And how then do you decide what's important and what's not important? What's in and what's out? Yeah, I mean, that's a process of negotiation, essentially. It depends a lot on who you're writing for. Um, so, you know, if you're uh, in, you know, at Home Affairs, uh, the kind of service standard was uh, anybody above band two we would fully write a speech for. Um, below that, it would be, I would just, you know, help them out. I'd do some, you know, copy editing at the end, but I wouldn't fully write it. And so it'd be a case of going and meeting with the person um, who's going to be speaking and saying, what, what is it you want to say? And then kind of uh, winnowing that down to a few key messages, maybe you know, between three to five, depending on the length of the speech. Uh, some of these ones were regrettably quite lengthy speeches. Um, and then getting the evidence to support that. So 
you know, sometimes you just have to sit down and write a 50 minute speech and, you know, you're going to need a lot to fill that air. And, uh, I guess the other thing that was helpful was learning things like, you know, the ordinary rate of speech. You know, an ordinary person speaks about 110 words per minute. A fast speaker speaks about 120. So that means you can kind of figure out from the word limit, uh, from the time limit, uh, how much air you're going to need to fill, how many pages you're going to need to write. And then you can really just negotiate with them. You know, I think we need to have this here. I don't think that this really fits. Uh, and maybe they might argue for it. I mean, ultimately, you kind of have to respect their wishes because at the end of the day, they're the ones that are speaking the words. So, you know, history is going to remember their name. It's not going to remember my name. Um, and so um, that's kind of how it is. You've got to negotiate it. So, listen, in terms of speeches in the digital age, where do they fit in terms of part of your storytelling armory? And how should we be thinking about speeches to a degree some of this has evolved hasn't it if you look if you consider what you're doing right now you know delivering a podcast is essentially a long-form narrative you know where you've got certain things that you want to say um and you've you know you've got an audience that you're addressing that to and so to a degree that is also kind of like a speech i would say that in the digital age the kind of the the, the difference between say a speech and uh, a script for a video is blurry and i think that will continue to blur um, but then on the other hand there are still you know lots of occasions that are still very straightforward formal speeches, um, but that are going to be delivered digitally. Think, for example, um, of, uh, you know, when the American president gets up there um, and addresses the people, whether that's, you know, State of the Union, or if that's, you know, there's been some kind of an emergency, that is very much a speech. Um, so there's still a place for them, but they're still happening, but they're certainly blurring a lot. Um, also, I would say just kind of generally, the thing that's really interesting about speeches, and this doesn't change in the digital age, is how, they bring together kind of lots of different aspects of comms into one thing. They bring together um, the live um, kind of theatre of uh, a media conference. Um, they bring together the long form narratives of, say, an opinion editorial or another long form piece. Um, and it's, it's going to be recorded. It's going to exist in perpetuity. So the evidence needs to be correct. Your points need to be right. And that really brings a lot of things together. It being digital doesn't really change any of that fundamentally. No, and I, I certainly agree with you that it's a it's a wonderful way of organising your thoughts around a particular topic. And then once you've organised your thoughts around a particular topic and done the work in sort of putting together a speech, there then is the opportunity to either cut pieces of that up to then be distributed, be it video or be it audio, or to expand on different parts of that. But they are a great way of sort of putting something together, aren't they, In a, you know, to respond to a particular context and a, and a, a particular point in time. That's right. I mean, one of the things that we used to do at Home Affairs, for example, um, when I was work with the social media team there, would be to give them a copy of the speech that was going to be delivered um, so, and then work with them to identify which ones of these little, um, you know, points might be pulled out for a social post. You know, what's, what's can you, you know, you want to do a picture of the speaker and you have a little pull quote on there. Um, what's the most relevant part for that? And then also just often I would actually be there while the speeches are being delivered and kind of texting them and saying, oh, this wording changed slightly. This is what was actually delivered. So we could kind of update things on the fly. Um, whilst also having that kind of responsiveness that you need in the digital realm, you know, you can't be waiting around for hours. Mm. So, listen, speech writing is obviously just a, a small part of your career and, and what it is that you've done. What's your advice to people who are looking to communicate effectively with ministers' offices, be they working as part of the uh, the bureaucracy trying to get a message in? Mm. 
uh, to a minister's office or from a constituent trying to engage effectively with a minister's office. As someone who's been sitting on the inside as a receiver of effective communication, what does that best practice look like in terms of reaching in to engage with a minister's office? Yeah, I mean, reaching into a minister's office can really vary quite a lot. It depends a lot on the, the nature of the portfolio, the personality of the minister, uh, you know, the personality of the staff for that matter. Um, but fundamentally, it still comes down to the two kind of main points. Uh, you know, firstly, you need to be clear. And that's a point in really all communication and something that I'll return to, you know, time and time again when discussing this with people, which is don't ever try and sound clever. Go for clarity instead. Clarity over cleverness every day, all the time. Um, and the second point is... Um, really understanding what the other person wants. So, you know, for example, if you're working, you know, in a, a department or uh, something like that, and you get a request from a minister's office, it's not always apparent what exactly it is that they're after. Um, but the more that you can kind of firm that up, and whether that's, you know, going back and asking, or if you're tasking out from a minister's office or from a member's office, again, being clear about what you want, um, because otherwise you get products that aren't fit for purpose. Um, you know, you, you get a situation where, you know, maybe a set of TPs or something like that, talking points, um, is bouncing back and forth between the minister's office and it's not really clear why. And it can be particularly difficult sometimes when you're remote from that interaction. If you're, you know, really far down the chain, you're working in a, a directorate or something of that nature, you're not in direct contact with the minister's office, um, that's when it's a good idea to do something like give your DLO, your departmental liaison officer, uh, a call or drop them an email and say, um, can you just help me clarify what it is that we're looking for here? <laughs> yeah, I'm confused and I can't, and, I, you know, and I'm out of guesses. I don't know where to turn next. That's right. I think I've given you what I want for the last five iterations and I still obviously have it. So can you make it a little clearer, please? <laughs> Yeah. So listen, your current role, just explain what it is that you do um, as part of the uh, security uh, and estate group in terms of that comms uh, for that particular group inside the Australian Department of Defence. Sure. So I'll touch on that uh, lightly because I don't want to go too much into it for you know reasons of confidentiality and all that kind of thing. But broadly speaking, I'm assisting them uh, and my, I've got a small team. We're assisting them to engage with industry, um, primarily to engage with um, with industry, including like small to medium enterprises, indigenous, you know, veteran-owned companies, um, to try and get them into the supply chain. That's what fundamentally what a lot of the work is about. It's about saying these are things that are happening in this space that may be of interest to you, you know, work or what have you, um, and this is what's what's going on currently. And just trying to bring those two things together to keep industry informed. And it's not it's not defence industry. It's not you know missiles and tanks and rockets. It's uh, you know, civil engineering, construction, tradies, people like that, um, to, to come get work mm. on the estate. So I just assist them, assist them with that, about articulating the message, you know, properly and uh, targeting it and things of that nature. So how has your current role been influenced by your past experiences? I'd say quite a lot. Um, I think that, you know, it sounds a bit pretentious and that is perhaps because it is pretentious, but I, um, I've always tried to take roles that really kind of align with my values. And part of that is doing something that I think um, is of benefit to the, to the nation, right? So I'm not terribly likely to go and work for doing comms for say a clothing store because I don't really think it's that important. Although obviously, of course we need clothes, um, but doing, doing communication work in things like, you know, Department of Home Affairs or, um, you know, the competition consumer regulator um, or with defense or in the defense industry, all of it comes down to me 
um, looking at it saying, is there an actual benefit to this? Well, I believe there is. I believe the defence industry is very important for Australia, um, so I'm really happy to work in it. Um, this role that I'm in currently obviously draws a lot on my experience from being in the service. It gives you really good insight and helps you working with other service people. Um, it also uh, you know, helps with understanding things like the language and obviously the acronyms because we both know the acronyms of Defence are a lot. <laughs> Love their TL, yep. their three-letter acronyms. Um, <laughs> but uh, it all comes together for me. And so, you know, having had that experience of being in the military, and I was also in the cadets when I was a kid. I was in the Air Force cadets in Tasmania when I was younger. I was a cadet sergeant. I actually got way, way further in the cadets than I ever did in the Navy. <laughs> um, it all comes together because it brings together those bits of different elements. So the, the speech writing stuff that I learned, you know, in Senator Payne's office and in Home Affairs and, and so on. And also, I mean, it wasn't just speech writing in Home Affairs. It was a lot of things like estimate statements, um, annual report forwards, exec comms, um, you know, writing the, the exec comms from the, the secretary and all people like that, really taught me a lot about how to firstly articulate a narrative, which I think is kind of my key skill is crafting a narrative. And second, how to kind of get into somebody's mind to know what's important to them, to try and draw that out. Um, because there's kind of two schools of thoughts when it comes to, you know, doing corporate comms, particularly when you're writing for other people, as opposed to, you know, just writing for, for an inbox or something like that. It's either you're either giving them a voice or you're emulating their voice, and you really kind of need to pick which one it is. Um, and so all of those skills kind of come together in um, what I'm what I'm doing at the moment, and you know hopefully what I'll be doing in future with you know any roles that I work in. Mm. So listen, what are you, what are you, what is your best advice to help government communicators to engage effectively with citizens to help build community to help restore trust mm. in government? I think that there's kind of three kind of main things that I would look at for that. Um, firstly, your communication needs to be frequent and sincere. Um, so, you know, we don't need to only hear when there's a problem. You know, we like to know about the, the journey as well. There was a, a quote, I can never quite remember it properly, but it was something like JFK speechwriter or someone like that saying, if you want me to be there giving you comm support when the planes crashed, then I ought to be there when it's taking off too. And so the kind of idea is that, you know, you should be there for that whole of journey. And so particularly when you're communicating with people and particularly in a time now where we've seen so much degradation in public trust and civic institutions, um, the trust thereof, um, it's important to, to be sincere, to make it clear that what you're saying is, is true. You can back it up with the evidence. The second point I would make, um, again, is plain English. This is something that you see a lot um, across the public service, obviously, particularly in the senior levels. Um, you have some very, very intelligent people. Um, and sometimes when people are very intelligent and very engaged in a particular area of subject matter, it can be a little bit difficult for them to communicate um, because uh, it's, you know, you've got to communicate to the person who's least familiar with your material in the room, not always the person who's the most familiar. And so having that discussion in plain English and trying to simplify things and make them relatable and understandable, I think is really important. Uh, and the final point that I think is important, it's something that I kind of think, it's kind of like a signature of my work, is context. Any work that I do, generally I put lots of context in there wherever possible. Um, I think that that's something um, that's really important in government, particularly because some of the government work can be kind of abstract um, or it can be about complex um, complex programs or processes and sometimes they can be highly emotive. I mean when I was working at Home Affairs it was during the you know I worked there throughout the entire um, you know 
um, boat people, however you want to term it, boat people era um, in various roles, not just in comms, in other roles as well. Um, and that was a really highly emotive, highly contentious area of public policy. And so we always kind of keep it in the back of your mind that you need to explain why these things are happening. You know, if you're, if you're putting out, um, you know, doing an op-ed or you're doing a social media post or a committee statement, especially actually, most importantly with committee statements, um, like in the Senate, is to explain why things are happening, not simply that they have happened. Um, because that's sometimes missing. And I think you can save a lot of heartache, a lot of questions on notice um, by adding that context up front and saying, you know, this is the reason that this is happening. This has not happened in isolation. You know, we have this information that supports this action or this policy has been developed because of it's a response to this, you know, report or whatever it is. Giving that context is really important because that context can help um, people, particularly people in the public who might not be very engaged with what you're doing, um, understand the rationale that you're applying, that you're not just acting randomly or, um, you know, sometimes whatever you're doing, they might not be very on board with, you know, and there's a there's a difference between kind of explaining it to somebody and just kind of letting them wear it. And that difference will be expressed in how they feel about it. Mm. How how hard is it to to make context or to, to infuse a narrative with context and to still keep it brief? How do you go about that sort of, you know, stitching those things together? It's really hard. Um, it's really difficult <laughs> to some degree. Yeah. <laughs> To some degree, it's about, um, you know, repetitive messaging. Um, you know, sometimes, um, particularly when you're dealing with people who don't necessarily really understand comms very well, um, there can be a tendency to look at things and say, oh, this sounds a lot very similar to something you've said before. Um, and, you know, our point of view as comms people is always, yes, that's a feature, not a bug. Um, so, <laughs> um, giving, giving that, um, making that clear, building up a narrative over time and reinforcing it continuously, um, itself builds context. Um, so, and there's, you know, always other opportunities too, you know, if you're writing an, a long form, you know, narrative piece, you have lots of opportunity for context. If you're doing a social media campaign, well, maybe you can start building that through things like your hashtags and what you're linking to and, uh, and whatever else. Um, the challenge is always, particularly in government comms, um, not specifically in the role that I'm in now, but just in any role that I've had really, is about um, being able to push the important messaging through the layers of bureaucracy that you're working with since you are sometimes, depending on who you're writing for, often quite removed um, from, from the end state. I mean, if, you're, if I'm a speechwriter and I'm writing for the secretary, um, then that's pretty simple. I've got direct access. But if I'm writing for somebody else who's submitting something to the secretary and it's like five times removed from me, then there's a lot of opportunities for that message to get diluted. And so that's where adding the context doesn't necessarily even have to go to the message. Sometimes the context is going to the person who's going to be approving it and saying, this is why we are including this in the message. Mm. So listen, you've been around uh, for a while. Throughout your career, what are the big changes that you're seeing that, that government communicators need to understand and perhaps take advantage of in order to, uh, you know, be more effective, uh, be more able uh, to be included earlier in the conversations and to be more valued uh, in the roles that they play? Yeah, it's, a, it's something that's always kind of the case with comms, I think, which is that, you know, comms is a strategic enabler that works across, across any organisation that it's in, 
and it can dip into little bits and pieces here and there to help them achieve their goals. But generally speaking, comms can have a pretty broad view of what's happening in any given organization by nature of all the people that they deal with. And so building those relationships, I think, um, has become increasingly important in comms. Comms used to be um, very transactional. In some places, it still is very transactional. And kind of um, getting away from that, uh, in my experience and observation, has been partly about communicators building stronger relationships um, with the non-comms people in their organizations, you know, departments, companies, or whatever, whatever, to kind of demonstrate over time the kind of um, positive outcomes that you can get. Um, people always think comms is gonna do something stupid, essentially. You know, if we give you this information, you're going to go out there and tweet it. It's like, no, literally, we're never going to do that. We're going to stop you from tweeting something wrong. <laughs> um, and so building those relationships over time has become really important. So I think that the relationship management aspect of it has, has certainly increased um, in, in value. Also, obviously, the embrace of uh, social media in the digital space is, you know, huge. I mean, I think, you know, when I joined Home Affairs, it was like 2006, and I was there till 2018. Uh, and, you know, there was, there was no social media, I think, at all at that point. Um, so when I joined, certainly I'd be surprised if there was. Um, and so really just trying to stay up to date with that has been a change. Um, but also I think that there are more comms people in government now than there used to be. And that's that's something. And I mean, I'm never quite sure who to attribute this quote to. I read once that it was Napoleon Bonaparte. Another person said it was Stalin. But it was uh, that quantity has a quality all of its own. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and, uh, so uh, simply having a great quantity of comms people um, now, um, building across the public service especially, um, is great. And that's a change. And that was never, wasn't the case in the past. And I think that through the pandemic, um, we have increasingly seen the importance of good public you know, government communication. Um, and we've also seen what happens when it's lacking. Um, and so that gives a real kind of impetus um, towards greater empowerment of comms people to be more part of strategic conversations. Um, yeah, that's kind of what I think about it anyway. Mm. And, and, and I totally agree with you. I think that, you know, getting up out of your chair and going and, you know, inviting yourself to meeting uh, and really playing that role of where people are, you know, they can't see the necessary reason maybe as to why you need to be there. I think that's the point is that you've really got to go there and again build trust over time uh, and another thing is that when you when you do have impact is to make sure that you are showing people and demonstrating back to the organization the value that you're creating and not just quickly moving on to the next thing where because there's always something else to do there's yeah. always the next thing but i think there is a really increasingly important um uh, function to be able to explain what it is that you're doing, why you're doing it, and the impact that you're having. Because I think if you can do that over time, you build that reputation and then you start to become the, oh, hang on, I'm going to actually go to that person because you know, last time when we did this, look at the, you know, the, the impact that we we're able to create. So I think, yeah, get up out of your chair, build those relationships, get in front of people, invite yourselves to meeting and make sure you are showing and demonstrating to the organization the value that you're creating. So as you're more likely uh, to be invited to other conversations and other opportunities into the future. That's exactly right. And I think the, the other aspect of that is, you know, when you're talking about demonstrating what you're doing and demonstrating your value, um, sometimes the work that we do can be invisible, particularly if, you know, it's, it's quite clear when there's been an issue and somebody's come to engage comms to, you know, help with a, a media kind of holding statement or, or something of that nature. But, but it's not obvious to anybody where you've proactively identified an issue before it's happened and have um, fixed it before it's occurred. 
which you know in comms you're doing all the time. Um, you know, telling people, oh, maybe you shouldn't do that because there's you know there are these optics that you need to consider, or you know, reaching out to somebody on social media and saying, oh, you know, that stuff that you've just posted, it's a bit questionable. I would be careful with that because you know it could reflect on your employer, rah rah. And um, killing those kinds of things is it a function of kind of comms and PR as well that can often go completely unnoticed unless you point it out to people. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that is, and, and there's ways and ways of doing it. You don't have to put your name up in lights and push yourself to the front of the queue. Mm. Uh, but certainly, you know, you understand where the influence is and, and just just don't let it slide is, is my uh, advice to people often is it just make the point and make the effort to make the point. And again, you don't have to sort of make a big deal about it, but uh, yeah, certainly uh, it, it does help. Um, to be recognised, the impact that you're having. So listen, um, we're, we're, we're coming up against time and we could talk about many, many things, but I want you to go into the future. I want you to uh, time travel five years into the future and tell me what does it look like? What does the communication function look like? And how do people need to prepare now so as that they're having impact in five years' time? Oh boy, that's a that's a real tricky one. Um, again, I think a lot of this is about quality and quantity. So I think that you know, five years time, we're gonna in the world of government, you're going to see more comms people. That certainly is you know some of the recommendations that have come out of a variety of reports from you know a variety of different areas. I'm thinking of that uh, the one about the the pandemic report that was kind of privately funded. Yeah, that was an interesting week. one. That you know yep. was held by some venerable ex public servants but quite interesting for that to come from the private sector. And that had inf- uh, had some recommendations in there about comms, which was quite interesting. Um, that, you know, calling out government needs to invest more in its comms um, to really make sure that we get this right. And a lot of that is really just a function of trust and visibility, I think. So if you've got a greater amount of comms people um, being working within their, you know, organizations, their departments, agencies, whatever, um, and they're actually trusted by their, you know, their senior executives and the important people there. Then there's going to be a better quality of product that is produced. And as you know, I mean, five years from now, we could be looking at literally anything. I think the climate's probably not going to be great. Um, uh, and so, you know, particularly things around like disaster communication, floods, fires, you know, things like that. Um, that needs to be really, really, really accurate. Um, and I think, broadly speaking, it has been. I, I know that um, you know in Canberra, particularly during the. Um, the height of the pandemic, obviously we're not out of the pandemic now, but during the height of it, like last year especially, I thought that the ACT Health team did a stellar job, um, their comms team, um, of getting really clear, um, accurate, or at least as accurate you know, as they could be given the information that was available, getting that out and keeping the public engaged and informed um, during that whole period, especially when there was the daily press conferences. But I'm thinking also in terms of like the social media updates on Facebook and LinkedIn and places like that. I think we're gonna see more of that, pointed, accurate, comms that have clearly are the result of a whole chain of kind of trusted endeavor coming together to produce that outcome. And I think that recent events have really underscored the importance of that. And I don't expect that that's going to change. I also think that um, there could be, and this is highly speculative, and I'm not all an expert on this, but there could be a a greater um, emphasis on um, professional communicators working with places like national intelligence agencies and military and stuff like that um, to get into some of those kind of infra- information operations um, and to to work with the people that are carrying out that kind of work, you know, as, as part of national resilience and, um, you know, so on, um, to craft narratives and help them professionally to kind of build those stories. 
Uh, I can see that happening. I, I don't, I'm not aware of it actually happening yet, but I can, can see that there's a pathway to that happening at some point, which could be interesting. And just a final question, in terms of your advice to uh, young people working inside the government communication function in terms of the skills and the mindsets that they are going to need to uh, acquire in order for them to be valuable? What, what are the skills that, that are going to be important for government communicators to have a handle on? I think there's, there's a, there are a lot of things. One of the primary ones um, is the ability to write well. Um, I'm, you know, I must admit I have been surprised in some places um, that I've worked where um, I've encountered people who work in comms that aren't great writers and I'm always kind of surprised about how that would be, how you would come to be a comms person if you weren't a confident and clear communicator. Um, so engaging with your content, um, you know, reading a lot of material, reading lots of different books, doesn't really matter what genre they are. Um, is really important for a writer because it exposes you to a greater vocabulary. So certainly trying to expand your vocab, but also understanding when you should be using a 10 cent word and not a $10 word, it's pretty important. Um, <laughs> um, I, think, uh, I think that learning the levers to pull inside your organizations are super important. And so focusing on those soft skills like your relationship management skills are important. Uh, always make friends with your EAs and your EOs. They're the gatekeepers to your senior executives. And uh, they're a very important person for you to be friendly with um, because they can be influential and they can also um, give you more information when you need it. And you don't necessarily want to bother, you know, you don't want to bother your DEPSEC, but you can talk to their EO and get the information that you need out of them. That's really important. Um, and also I think um, engaging with other communicators online, especially through platforms like LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn, I think LinkedIn's awesome. It's a great place to get on there and speak to people that you would never otherwise get to speak to. Um, or sometimes you wouldn't even have any visibility of. So like, for, for example, um, I was working in a speech at Home Affairs one time that was something to do with Prime Minister's office. I can't really remember what it was, but it was, um, you know, Home Affairs people and the PM's people were gonna be in the same place giving a speech. And so I wanted to reach out to the PM's speech writing team um, to find out um, you know, make sure we could deconflict any messaging that there was not going to be anything that was going to kind of, um, you know, um, be incorrect. That was going to we were going to say one thing and the PM was going to say the other thing. Uh, and so I looked up the speechwriting team on LinkedIn and was able to actually connect with the the, the head departmental side speechwriters um, through that way. And I've actually maintained that relationship um, with with that person um, who now works for I don't know UNSW or something like that. Um, but it was important because I could get um, could get that outreach through LinkedIn. I could say, hey, I'm working on this on this end. Just want to check this messaging that we're working on isn't going to conflict with what you're saying, is it? And obviously, we you know we got the correct emails and stuff. We didn't have that discussion on LinkedIn. We just got each other's emails off there. Um, but that let me find somebody who I would not otherwise have been able to find. Um, and reaching out to your professional network like that, I think is pretty important um, to develop your skills and your knowledge um, and just developing a huge network of comms people to deal with. I mean, I've got Barack Obama's ex-speechwriters on there. I've got corporate comms people from heads of companies that I would otherwise never have been in a position to speak to that I can message and say, um, you know, hey, what do you think about this, you know, news story? Or um, do you have any tips on how to present this information? Uh, and you can get that. And so engaging further in your networking, even if it's just online, I think is an underrated skill and something that should happen more as well. Well, Ben Roberts, value bombs galore uh, in this podcast. And thank you so much. You know, the purpose of the podcast is really to have senior communicators such as yourself uh, 
to share wisdom so that people can be just a little bit better in their job every day. So a big thanks uh, to you for coming on today. We certainly do appreciate it. Thanks very much. Thank you. And a big thanks to you, the audience, for coming back once again. The Gulf Comms podcast is growing in audience and impact. And I was at a conference uh, in Brisbane the other day, and it was lovely when uh, one of the uh, conference attendees came up to me and said, I love this podcast because it really helps them. It's all about government communicators and trying to help uh, the, the, the function and the practice of communication inside government and the public sector and to really take advantage of people like Ben who are experienced, who do know what they're talking about. And as I said, just great value there today. But audience, thank you for coming back again. We'll be back at the same time in two weeks with another episode of GovComs. But for the moment, my name's David Pembroke and it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes. 